Cloud9 Fin, a podcast on all things leverage finance. We follow corporate debt from issuance to redemption, credits from performing to distressed, and everything in between. I'm Bianca Borer, and today I'm sitting down with Chris Schubert, Executive Director in Special Situations at El Centra. Before El Centra, Chris was an associate at Greenhill & Co, working on M&A and financial restructuring transactions. Thanks for coming on today, Chris. Thanks for having me. So tell us what is Alcentra's special situation strategy and what is your role on the team? Yeah, so by way of background, I think Alcentra is one of the longest standing credit asset managers in Europe. And we've been part of Franklin Template now for the past couple of years and the alternative strategy there. Uh, we're quite integrated as a firm, I would say. We work as one platform with other Alcentra teams. In our case, that's mostly the liquid credit team, given our focus on the liquid secondary market. And in a nutshell, I guess what we do in special sits is a mix of stressed credit, uh, which typically refers to senior secured debt trading at a deep discount to par, uh, and companies that are perceived to be challenged, but uh, which we think uh, can ultimately grow back into their capital structures and refinance. Uh, as opposed to that, the stressed credit obviously is the classic good business, bad balance sheet approach, where we see companies with overlapped balance sheets, which may benefit from a resizing of the capital structure. And then finally, uh, within our toolkit, uh, Capital Solutions, which is a catch-all for super senior rescue financing opportunities, mostly in the private space as, as well as more esoteric opportunities like liquidations or litigation claims. And are there any sectors that you're particularly focused on? Real estate was a big topic last year. Are there any more that we should be looking out for? So we're generally sector agnostic, uh, which means we're looking at anything from industrials, natural resources, uh, to consumer healthcare or, or telco businesses. And in fact, if you look at uh, the portfolio today, it's a pretty wide mix of sectors. In our line of business, uh, you know, you tend to gravitate to where you can find opportunity. And in the 2010s, so the last decade, that meant sectors undergoing structural changes, for example, bricks and mortar retail, missing the transition to online or oil and gas, anything from upstream and EMPs, given a supply glut in, in crude oil, resulting price collapse, and as the next derivative of that, all the offshore and, and service companies. Exciting thing about the environment today is that uh, the opportunity set is a lot more diverse and include sectors that have historically been deemed defensive, such as healthcare or, or telco, which I mentioned before. Now, um, imagine real estate, uh, that's top of mind for many in our industry, given the breadth of the opportunities right now, both on uh, the residential and on the commercial side, and particularly in, in the Dach market and the Nordics. Uh, a lot of those companies obviously, have been capitalized in the SERP era, uh, with capital structures not set up to sustain four to five percent base rates and there's clearly as you as you can see today there's widespread stress in the system companies working through liquidity issues upcoming maturities and lenders on the other hand realizing they're not actually that well covered from an ltv perspective given you know portfolio revaluations going on at the moment uh, so we think ultimately there will be much more activity this year in real estate more pain before it gets better. And the challenge for us as investors and, and our competitors is, is finding out which business models are only temporarily stressed and remain viable in the long run. Okay, that sounds like a bit challenging. Um, we heard some of your thoughts on what the distressed debt market would look like in 2024 in our watching the defectives piece this year. 
Um, could you elaborate more on what your expectations are for the year ahead? Yeah. So uh, a comment up front on, on the broader outlook before I go into what's happened in the year today, because there are a few differences to point out. I think uh, broadly, I can reiterate that we see an extremely attractive environment for distressed investing, and that's driven by a few factors, obviously base rates being one of them. They're a lot higher today than they were two years ago, which makes loans attractive given their floating rate, and bond prices look cheaper given the duration. Uh, it also means more fundamentally that the cost of debt for companies is now twice as high as before, uh, which puts a massive strain on uh, liquidity, especially when that's coupled with earnings erosion, as we're seeing right now. So you can do the maths, uh, as I've mentioned in your article, uh, on which companies can sustain that and which can't, and you can see the effects in interest cover and, and leverage ultimately. Uh, another key aspect uh, driving the opportunity set for us is, is upcoming maturities across the European leverage loan and, and high yield market. In between 2024 and 26, we see about 300 billion maturities coming due, so a very, very substantial amount, uh, despite uh, what's probably going to be a potential central bank pivot on the horizon later this year. Uh, you compound that with much higher cost of debt, and you can see that refinancings will become difficult, especially for stress issuers. And our view that will result in elevated dispersion between triple C and, and higher rated credits. And for that triple C bucket, uh, with refis prohibitively expensive and or to penalizing, uh, you know, there will be uh, a need for more comprehensive and, and creative solutions required to address those maturities. And away from that, uh, you obviously can't disregard that we're in quite a volatile economic environment and, and the jury's still out on whether we're running into a more drawn out recession. I think from our perspective, given we're still relatively early in what we see as a multi-year cycle, uh, relative value is still better in, in stress opportunities where you can get really attractive LTVs today, spec by cash flows, by assets, by share security, and you can capture equity-like returns of 15 to 20% plus. Uh, this stress, on the other hand, as I've mentioned, uh, second side of the coin, uh, we do believe there will be a shift in the opportunity set as the cycle deepens and that dispersion between higher and lower quality issuers increases. And now to close on that point, it's, it's interesting to highlight that uh, while we do expect that all to hold true over the next few years or so, uh, so far this year, the picture has been quite different. Uh, we saw a rally in credit, particularly in, in triple C. Uh, the differential between single B as, as the next highest bucket and triple C is still high and rightly so. Uh, but that has tightened as a reaction to inflation gradually coming down and in anticipation of an earlier base rate pivot. And surprisingly, uh, at least for us, the new issue market is, is wide open even for dividend recaps, which are normally a sign of a hot market. So overall, I would say quite contradictory to the wider dynamics in place, but looking at valuation levels across both equity and credit markets, we're, we're quite sure we're in for a correction. Yeah, I think everyone's always waiting for that maturity wall. <laughs> um, you mentioned creative solutions. Let's take a look back at 2023. Um, we saw a few liability management exercises. There, were there any standouts for you? Well, uh, what I would say is they have certainly become more prevalent as part of the borrower toolkit over here. And you can 
uh, include in that anything from relatively uncontroversial debt buybacks uh, to raising priming capital to more coercive measures such as exchange offers or those so-called up-tiering and drop-down transactions. One case last year uh, which outlined some of those elements is Ideal Standard. Uh, now they produce bathroom appliances and fittings. It's a company that many people know and obviously love to hate. <laughs> uh, they had a they had a 325 million bond outstanding that was due in 2026, uh, which we bought in secondary. Uh, we see they've done really well as as part of the industry coming out of COVID. Um, but then the cycle uh, turned through 2022, and given that erosion of earnings that they've encountered, a full refi at a maturity was becoming ever more unlikely. And what also emerged was uh, that there was a bid for the company by a strategic. Uh, which didn't cover the full bond principle. Uh, and at this stage, for bondholders, obviously, including ourselves, the choice was either a below-par takeout at a level that was yet to be determined or a more comprehensive refinancing and uh, and or restructuring, uh, which could have meant a that to equity swap ultimately. So for us, uh, if you think about it conceptually, the, the trade-off was, do I want to take a more tangible value today, even if it's below-par, or do I work my way through all the execution risk attached to it for an uncertain outcome further out in the future? So those are time value of money, risk versus reward considerations for us. And as part of a group uh, representing the largest bondholders, we decided to go down that option one, so the below par takeout. Now, from the borrower's perspective, you can do only so much. Uh, you usually need 90% or more to compromise bondholder rights absent the more formal restructuring. So what we therefore tried to set up was an exchange of a transaction that provided both a carrot and a stick to entice maximum bondholder approval, which would allow us ultimately to avoid the process. So for consenting holders, uh, we settled on a takeout price of 72 cents plus 10 for early birds, so 82 cents in total, as well as an upside sharing instrument and that all compared to the bonds trading in the 50s at that point. Uh, Non-consenting non holders, on the other hand, would have faced the removal of substantially all their covenants and, and other protections as well as the bonds listing. So you can see quite draconian if you do end up in, in that uh, ballpark. Uh, we also set it up such that in the event we would receive less than 90% consent and the M&A transaction wouldn't complete. Uh, that consenting holders would exchange into an up tier bond ranking prior to non-consenting holders and therefore improving recoveries further down the road. So you can see it's a, it's a carrot and stick approach that you can see relatively often in those uh, LME transactions. And eventually uh, the exchange offer received 99% plus support from bondholders, which allowed the borrower to implement the transaction without the formal process. And then not long after, uh, the sale of Ideal Standard to Villeroy and Boch was announced for around about 600 million uh, and it's due to close at the end of the month, uh, at which point bonds will be redeemed. So it's a good outcome for everyone involved. Market reaction was very positive and I think it showcases some of the key elements of those LME deals and also I think importantly shows that ultimately it doesn't need to be a zero-sum game between all the parties involved. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a, a no-brainer if you bought in below par. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm trying to think of puns now about uh, sinks. It's no longer a sinking business. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> um, so 
We saw a lot of investors taking the keys from sponsors through debt for equity swaps. Do you think uh, this will continue this year? I mean, that goes um, back to my earlier comments on the outlook for the year and the increasing number of those liability management deals uh, and other uh, corporate transactions. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, we do believe that for most higher rated issuers or away from the triple C bucket, there will ultimately be a path to a refi. If, on the other hand, that's out of reach or there is an imminent liquidity need, that to equity swap is certainly one of the options uh, with the caveat that this usually hinges on one, whether the sponsor continues to be supportive of the company and two, uh, whether lenders are willing and prepared to take over the company in the first place. Uh, some of that is not within your control as an investor and there are market participants who for their very own reasons cannot take or don't want equity in a company, which at the same time obviously gives sponsors leverage vis-a-vis -vis creditors. Uh, and so in most cases, composition of the holder base therefore becomes a more important consideration. Uh, if you can see from the outset, for example, that is largely parlanders involved, CLOs and, and real money, a true debt to equity swap or restructuring is a more unlikely scenario. Uh, as a result of that, we've seen uh, a lot of uh, cases recently where creditors and sponsors have found some form of middle ground, uh, leaving the sponsor in control while avoiding material concessions from creditors such as write-offs. Um, the cases which did turn out to be debt to equity swaps on the other hand often share a number of characteristics. Uh, sponsors being far out of the money and unwilling to support or there's a serious fundamental issue with the business. Uh, it also most likely had the holder base that I just mentioned uh, turnover from power lenders to opportunistic or distressed guys more willing to recut the capital structure and to underwrite an operational or strategic turnaround. So bottom line is, I think there will be cases, uh, although it will be more situation specific rather than broad based. Yeah. Um, I guess what, what are some of the lessons you've learned from the restructurings that you've been involved in? Yeah, so some learnings or success factors, I would say, without going into the technicalities, uh, more from a soft issue perspective. Uh, I mean, it's key that you approach uh, the situation with your eyes open. The obvious point is knowing from which position you start as a creditor and what your levers are in the process. If you have a trigger, such as uh, an upcoming liquidity need or a covenant breach, it also means uh, knowing who sits on your side, your fellow creditors, uh, what their motives are, what their pain points are, and likewise, who sits on the other side, how likely they are to support company or leave the floor to, to you as the creditors. I would say from a creditor's perspective, it's important obviously to plan for all possible scenarios, whether it's contentious, uncontentious. That means having a viable contingency plan in place, things don't go according to expectations. And if you do end up in the shoes of the shareholders, uh, you need to be very clear about everyone's timelines, how they fit into the turnaround of the business and the ultimate exit routes, because there can be many. Uh, governance post-deal is another crucial aspect to mention for us, where we fared best if we got directly involved rather than outsourcing the matter. Uh, but having said all of that, I think the overarching point is knowing what you're solving for from the very beginning. Uh, if it's only a temporary hiccup and the company needs bridge financing or the business is over-levered and the capital structure needs to be resized. What we've seen in the last years is that more often than not, 
a restructuring doesn't solve the fundamental issue, such as an overlap at balance sheet, uh, but only pushes out the problem into the future. And those kick the can deals that had to come back for another round. Uh, we're seeing it again, uh, Coderia, I think, for uh, the fourth or fifth time in the news last week, uh, which is obviously not the attention uh, going in, but it does happen. Yeah, I've seen a lot of deals come back a year later. But yeah, I, I, it's, it's interesting what you say about the different parties in your position. I often think of restructurings as like game theory. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so whitelists are another topical issue. Um, they essentially create a barrier for new investors to come into a distress situation yep. as a sort of white knight. What, what are your thoughts on, on whitelists? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's worth noting that they're not new uh, as a concept. They have been a feature of uh, European loan documentation for quite some time, but obviously in recent years they have become a lot more common. Uh, and the fact, as you rightly point out, they restrict transferability of leverage loans to lenders that are perceived as borrow unfriendly or aggressive or more inclined to take over the company. Uh, and the concept has evolved from only precluding transfer to certain funds, uh, but also to cover stress teams at uh, larger asset managers and then finally to requiring company and or sponsor consent to transfer at all. And with those whitelists becoming ever more restrictive as, as we've been seeing in the last few years, uh, what that obviously leads to is, is more limited market liquidity and distorted or gappy price action until it's too late and the company has defaulted at, at which point obviously the whitelist tends to fall away. Uh, we also think that, you know, they make restructuring processes more cumbersome. Given you're effectively a lockbox, you end up with creditors who have no interest in solving for a sustainable capital structure, but who would have liked to have sold already yesterday. So you're precluding a group of market participants who often take a more transactional, more decisive stance and who can act quickly. And that all benefits the borrower, by the way, if time is of the essence. So from our perspective, they're an unnecessary nuisance and uh, there should be some form of workaround. Yeah. Um, as, a, as a German yourself, you focused on distress situations there. Can you tell us a bit about the distress landscape in, in Germany? Uh, sure. It's not too dissimilar to other continental European countries in the sense that it is still a fairly local market. Uh, majority, of course, is covered out of the UK, uh, but having your network on the ground, speaking the language is, is massively important and goes a long way. Uh, and I would describe the market generally as, as quite mature, creditor friendly, easy to navigate. It's also um, one of the larger markets in Europe, obviously, uh, tends to account for anywhere between 15 to 20% of the market volume for us in distress. Uh, sector wise, as, as everyone knows, Germany is uh, over-indexed to cyclical markets such as industrials, capital goods, and, and chemicals, uh, which is not a problem per se, but those sectors were hit particularly hard by supply chain issues and the energy crisis and are now facing uh, a recession, uh, TBD, whether that's a soft landing, a hard landing, or something in between. Uh, and while that creates opportunity for people like us, is is something to keep in mind thinking about the long-term implications for competitiveness of those those businesses and those sectors. Uh, and otherwise, if you think more about the market structure and some of those uh, quirks in Germany, uh, you have bank syndicates, uh, which are still relatively common here. Um, CLO financing still prevails for larger LBO deals, but uh, there's also deals, especially in the German 
mid-market uh, for which a group of five or six banks gets the underwriting uh, with private debt muscling in over the last decade that market has uh, has shrunk to less than 20 percent but it's sufficiently significant for for us to find interesting opportunities if there's a bank seller which opens up a previously uh, closed uh, syndicate uh, coupled with that i would say is is a very german preference for a house bank uh, due to the strong mittelstand or segment of, of mid-cap companies uh, germany has a strong house bank relationship culture until now there was little reason for for german companies to actively reach out to guys like us to distressed investors to provide funding and bridge liquidity issues uh, because when in doubt that money would have always been provided by a house bank and a lot cheaper at that uh, lately that has changed a little bit uh, especially if time was of the essence but i think it's still in that sense a market that is a bit removed from the distressed community uh, you also have away from the actors in the space you have different slightly different instruments such as Schulchina or promissory notes that have found their way uh, across German borders into other European markets, but are still largely uh, appear apparent here. Uh, they're often held by uh, German savings banks, cooperative banks, and uh, regularly presented obstacles in, in restructuring processes before the introduction of the Staruk. Uh, as compromising their rights can only be, be affected by 100% consent. Uh, on the restructuring front, generally just around off on that point, uh, the introduction of the Staruk was a massive step forward to facilitate uh, processes between parties and we've seen some first high profile cases such as Leone even though others like like Adla have still chosen to go down uh, the UK route um, so I would say uh, you still need to be aware of pitfalls such as specific director's duties around insolvencies or potential lender liability if you extend credit to virtually insolvent issuer but there's always ways to work around and, and get comfortable, such as uh, six reports in Germany as a tool in, in restructuring processes. So for people like us, uh, I guess what I can say is that there's plenty of opportunity in Germany and uh, making my point earlier, uh, especially right now in the real estate space, uh, yeah. which taken together, you know, with the improved legal framework, the Starhook uh, makes it quite an attractive place for us to invest. Great. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks for joining us today, Chris. Thanks for having me. And thanks to you, the listener, for tuning in. Please let us know if you have any feedback. You can reach out to us anytime by emailing team at ninefin.com. And check in next week to hear the latest on US markets from our New York team. And we'll be back the week after that. See you then.